Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Just, I'm just saying this as a friend. You really have a little ways to go when it comes to dealing with people. Really? How so? I, you don't even shake my hand the first time I see you. you, you know, at, at, at the theater, you That's know? It's not on your hand. It's just sneeze. That was a dry sneeze, Larry. It wasn't a sneeze. It was I, a... I can't assume dry. I gotta assume wet. It's air coming out. I'm not gonna put out my hand if it's full of snot. I didn't know it was air. I, th- I thought I saw some little speckles flying. I, I would assume you would know me well enough to know that I'm not gonna give you a handful of snot to shake your hand. And by, by the Sometimes way... you don't know if snot speckles are coming out. I saw snot speckles flying. Guys, we need to start. Yeah, please. Top of the page, page 31. All right, that's uh, Ben Stiller and Larry David uh, having a conversation that just perfectly encapsulates at least part of what we're going to be talking about today on a show about handshaking. We are so excited to have with us the person who wrote the book uh, when it comes to this topic, uh, Ella Al-Shamahi. Uh, her new book is called The Handshake, A Gripping History. I've been wanting to do this show since around April or May, uh, but we had to wait for the book to come out in the U.S. So uh, Ella Al-Shamahi, you're uh, here with us. We should say a National Geographic explorer, a TV presenter, paleoanthropologist, evolutionary biologist, stand-up comic, Olympic weightlifter. I mean, the, just uh, the credits go on and on. Um, so... Um, so yeah, maybe just respond to that clip. This that clip, uh, by the way, from Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's way before the pandemic. That's just two highly neurotic guys, uh, you know, yelling out their neuroses. But it has a certain kind of currency, right? No, I, I actually uh, I love first of all that uh, they were my opening act. Um, yeah, you couldn't <laughs> ask for better than that, I guess. Um, but I actually remember going through all the clips about the handshake that I could think of before I wrote the book or as I was writing the book. And of course, that was one of them. And I kept trying to find ways of shoehorning in um, various comedy heroes. Jerry Seinfeld made it in, but sadly, Larry David did not quite make it in, which is kind of funny because obviously Larry is um, much more neurotic, I think, and much more of our time. You know, people might say that he was um, he was clairvoyant, shall we say. So one of the arguments that you make in your book is that, first of all, this the whole conversation we're having right now, should a handshaking go the way of the dodo, uh, is actually um, a dance we've been to before it, and on more than one occasion. The idea that the handshake needs to go away for health reasons is not new. T- tell us more about that. I, I think this is fascinating. I think every moment in time, we just we very much seem to think that this is somehow incredibly unique. And actually... Anyone who's really studied history knows that um, even the pandemic's not not unique. I mean, there are aspects of it that are obviously unique. But you know, the, the Spanish flu. If you if you read the Spanish about the Spanish flu, <laughs> there are so many similarities, even down to minute discussions about wearing masks and how some people really don't like masks and some people do. And, you know, pictures of police officers, uh, you know, in the US wearing masks um, and then some not. And there being this whole discussion about it. So there's nothing really often that's that original. And it turns out even this discussion uh, about, you know, handshakes is not new at all. Uh, And in fact, um, I trace in the book so many times when the handshake falls out of favor. There are some really um, interesting ones. So for example, in uh, Prescott, Arizona, during the Spanish flu, they actually made the handshake illegal. 
during the, I think it was the end of the 1700s in Philadelphia, remember Philadelphia at the time was the US president, it was the US um, capital rather, Mm. there was a yellow fever outbreak and people shunned each other completely. They, they stopped shaking hands. And you could argue that that was, you know, right at the beginning of the United States being the United States. If ever there was a moment that would, you know, change a behavior in a nation, surely it would be, it would be then, you know, even the Washingtons left town, everybody left town. And it didn't, you know, the handshake came back. And my favorite example of all, I think, is um, in Azerbaijan, yeah. in Baku, where at the end of the 1800s, there was a cholera outbreak. And um, they formed an anti-handshake society <laughs> and um, you wore a pin to identify yourself. And I think uh, by far that was that was my favorite example of all. So I, I've known, for example, there's a, um infectious disease doctor here in this city who's been head of infectious diseases for two different hospitals. His name is Dr. Ulysses Wu. He doesn't shake hands. He has in, in the many, many years I've known him, he, he's just never shaken hands because, in fact, he's an infectious disease do- doctor. And he mm. has strong opinions about it. Uh, another doctor who's had kind of strong opinions about it, let's listen to Anthony Fauci. What are the things that you could still do and still approach normal? One of them is absolute compulsive hand washing the other one is you don't ever shake anybody's hands (laughs) that's clear i don't think we'd ever should ever shake hands ever again to be honest with you now to be honest uh, ella i don't i have not shaken anybody's hands since sometime you know around about 19 months or so (laughs) since i've shaken anybody's hand and and i i I don't terribly abstaining yeah (laughs) i'm abstaining now i also recognize that in terms of the actual transmission pattern for COVID 19 handshaking is actually a little bit down on the ladder i mean most of this is kind of respiratory it's upper airway to upper airway so i mean the danger of a handshake is probably that the face is coming closer uh, rather than the hands actually touching particularly if you're going to sanitize your hands at some point after the handshake so in a way I don't know. We're, we're probably using the wrong weapon to fight this battle. On the other hand, there's just a way in which culture does feel at least temporarily transformed. You just told it uh, told us it has a way of not staying transformed. But what's your take on all this? Okay, how do I put this? I was very nervous that me writing a book about the handshake at the moment when it was most sensible for us not to be shaking hands might be seen as you know slightly irresponsible if you didn't actually read the book because I was very clear that this wasn't uh you know this wasn't an obituary to the handshake as a celebration of the handshake but in the book I do kind of you know I do say a number of times guys please for the minute don't don't shake hands until you know until people are vaccinated until um the, the pandemic is a bit more under control. Can you can you please not shake hands? Now, it's interesting because obviously this book has gone out internationally and it's really interesting to see different government guidelines. So in the UK, they actually told us when we were allowed to shake hands and when we were allowed to hug. And these were on different days. So we were allowed to <laughs> hug people who were close to us before we were allowed to shake hands with kind of people that we didn't know as well. And it was just the most surreal moment, just, you know, being told by Boris Johnson when I was allowed to hug, you know, my, my mum <laughs> <laughs> it was a very strange moment. And I, you know, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for uh, infectious disease specialists and people like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, you know, in terms of the data, it's definitely in, in the height of the pandemic, don't be shaking hands. But you know, there's, there is an argument, right? There is an argument that maybe you don't shake hands even after that. If you, if you were to purely look at, you know, just hygiene and disease, it is kind of gross. I mean, and there's one fact, and I, I'm so sorry if anyone's eating, but it's it's something like only 19% of people worldwide wash their hands after fecal contact. 
now after, after they um, poo after they poo is what you're saying basically yeah after number two yeah but i, I love that they call it fecal contact <laughs> <laughs> but um some of this is obviously about access to water mm-hmm. but 19 percent that's not just access to water <laughs> that's no. that's that people are just a bit gross right right and, um, and your odds so, are your odds are better with a woman's hand than with a man's hand men are discussing 100 percent a hundred percent. So based on this, you're thinking maybe let's all go join the anti-handshake society of the, you know, in the 1800s. But there's a flip side, which is that human touch is so important. Remember in the, was it the 80s or 90s? So when, when I was super young, it was maybe the 90s, um, there was a really big movement to just sterilize everything. You know, it was, you would get Dettol out or some other product and you would just kind of wipe all the surfaces down. And I remember that's kind of the messaging that was put out to our parents. And then in the last, you know, 10 years or so, there's been increasing evidence to suggest actually maybe as kind of obsessively wiping down surfaces has actually done these kids a bit of harm and actually Mm -hmm. a few germs would be good for them. And I guess it's that delicate balancing act, isn't it? It's at what point does does the the importance of touch just because of all the hormonal you know reasons and all the societal reasons and the personal reasons why touch is so important, but also you know to build a, a better immune system. At what point does that weigh heavier on the scales than you know? touch is kind of gross as well, especially at the height of a pandemic. Right. We've actually done two. We did two shows pre-pandemic with a very distinguished and now Pulitzer winning journalist named Ed Young. One of them was about his book. I think it's called We Contain Multitudes, but it's about the biome. It's about that very notion. I mean, you know, not only are we not wiping things down or were we not wiping things down, we were taking probiotics so we could get more (laughs) things to do our systems because there's an understanding. Yeah, this to be completely sterile is to be not necessarily healthy that a lot of these single cell organisms are are here to do us good um, in some cases. The other show that we did with Ed Yong well before the pandemic was about the fact that we were going to have a pandemic pretty soon. So um, I feel like Ed is kind of informed by thinking uh, on on both of these things. I do want to just get you to say a little bit, first of all, your own relationship to handshakes is very interesting too. You drove up a long on-ramp to get to a point (laughs) where you were shaking hands anyway with men. Tell us about this. So I actually um, never really shook men's hands until the age of about, I don't know, maybe 26. And that's because um, I was brought up in a very, very conservative Muslim community. And until I was secular, followed, uh, you know, kind of strict interpretations on on touch between men and women. And obviously, I uh, at some point became more secular and, and started shaking men's hands and quickly realized that handshaking is, is not the same as handholding anyway. Uh, they're quite different. But the basic idea was, you know, touch between men and women is a slippery slope. And so so I practiced all these avoidance tactics because, you know, I was raised in, in Birmingham, England, you know, it's it, handshakes were really common and I'd constantly be trying to get out of it. And there was, there was a few different ones. So there was like the hand on the heart, which is perceived to be quite hippie-ish and it's, it's kind of really appropriate because it's, you know, it, people in the Middle East do that a lot. And I actually found myself reverting back to it on Zoom calls. Uh, but there were some that were less, um, shall we say, they, they were received not as well. Um, so I, I remember trying to salute people, but but trying to salute people in the middle of London while I'm in full kind of very traditional conservative female Muslim garb was, was perceived with a lot of confusion, I think. But it was just, you know, it was constant tactics to try and avoid it and, and not cause offense, which is the thing. Because I'm sure some of your listeners right now, including yourself, so you've 
you you're still not shaking hands I have to say I've been shaking hands now for, for a few months and I've seen when people are saying no to handshake it's quite an awkward scenario for them because you're not reciprocating something so it looks like you're rejecting it's just kind of basic anthropology really if you're if you're not mirroring someone's behavior it's it's seen in a negative light um even if you know you completely within your right to say actually i don't feel comfortable shaking hands now back then i you know was not comfortable shaking hands because of religious reasons and i i would you know really try to get out of it but mostly it was it was just really awkward and caused a lot of offense it was interesting because obviously when when the pandemic started, um, I was effectively unemployed for a minute there because all my TV shows and all my expeditions had to be stopped for you know for good reason. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't be kind of traveling around like the pandemic. And actually, my my agents sat down and were like, "Look, why not write a book on the handshake?" And they were like, "But we just don't know if it's for you. But we need an archaeologist to write a book on the handshake." And I just started laughing because I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, you guys have no idea how obsessed I am with this topic <laughs> and how." right it feels for somebody who you know grew up in a really conservative culture to write the you know the non-obituary um to the handshake during the height of when most people think the obituary should be written yeah actually the the gender reverse of that is in zar nafisi's book teaching reading lolita in in iran and she describes i think a, a student a young male student who won't shake her hand and for the same reasons basically and she kind of talks about that kind of shadowing her and she says her her whole experience in Iran was framed by the feel and touch of that aborted handshake so it does stay with people like I've decided that I'm probably going to go with with a namaste kind of thing moving forward that if people look like they're Mm. about to shake my hand I'm going to fold my hands in front of me and kind of bow slightly and maybe even say namaste what the hell But, but there are other things going on right there's something called the Wuhan shake where the feet touch kind of diagonally. Uh, there's uh, in, in Iran, speaking of Iran, there's this, this kind of butt bump that, that they started doing where they would sort of put their backs up to each other. And I mean, there are, there are some really? other alternatives. Go- yeah, check out the uh, Iran butt bump. I think if you do that, you could probably even get video. There's a BBC video of it. I, um, but yeah. yeah maybe, maybe look at that one as opposed to any other videos being suggested. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I think, um, so for me, the Wuhan shake was definitely my favorite because, um, you know, at the height of the pandemic in London, certainly people were really not touching and uh, people were barely in the streets at times. And so it just felt like a little dance, you know, kind of touching each other's shoes just felt it just gave us a moment of joy in a period of about five months where there was none. So I, I really liked that one during the pandemic. I, I have to maybe after the break, um, ask you some questions yourself, actually, about how you plan on kind of maneuvering um, <laughs> with this rejection, because it, it's a really interesting one. I actually want to ask you some questions. Oh, that's okay. Fair enough. I hate the elbow bump, by the way. But anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back uh, with our guest, uh, Ella Al-Shamahi. Uh, her new book out is called The Handshake, A Gripping History. The world is Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I really feel as human beings, we need more training in our basic social skills. There's absolutely no guidelines for handshakes. You don't have people too strong, too weak. Sometimes they give you the three-quarter handshake, just the fingers. <laughs> Early release, late release. Sometimes people will dispute your release. You've let go, they're hanging on. I have actually said to people, hey, the handshake is over. Too many pumps coming in too high, too sweaty from too far. We're back. Well, we're talking to Ella Al-Shamahi, a National Geographic explorer, paleoanthropologist, and relevantly, her latest book is The Handshake, A Gripping History. So a few uh, months ago in Youngstown, Ohio, a statue went up of a handshake. Uh, it was Jackie Robinson who, of course, broke the uh, color barrier in American baseball. He actually was had hit a home run in his first at bat in the International League, and a white player named George Shuba was standing at the plate to shake his hand. Nothing like that had ever happened. People called it the handshake for the century. Uh, and, and now, however many years later it is, it's 1946, the statue goes up of the handshake. So Ella, I mean, handshakes are, they're just, there's so much symbolism in, in them. They say so much. You've got a whole chapter in the book about this, but they have a way of kind of attempting to mend certain rifts too, right? Whether it's uh, a Rabin and Arafat or Elizabeth II and Martin McGinnis or there's a second a sense that we can't go forward until this kind of handshake takes place. Yeah, it's it's so symbolic. And I had a lot of fun, I think, for, for uh, two chapters there, kind of reflecting on the best handshakes of the modern era and the worst handshakes of the modern era. And they're also really telling. So um, as well as the kind of really well-known political handshakes, my all-time favorite just has to be a Princess Diana one where mm -hmm. she um, she shakes hands with, a, with an AIDS patient. And it was kind of revolutionary, actually, um, because this is at a point when, I don't know if people remember, but HIV was so stigmatized. I mean, the headlines that I was coming across in the tabloids, I mean, I, I, you couldn't, couldn't even repeat the stuff. You know, it was just really, really appalling stuff. And she, on purpose, decided to shake hands with an AIDS patient in a, a dedicated unit, a HIV unit in, in the hospital. And initially, when she turned up with the cameras, all the patients disappeared. So there's a lot behind that picture that people don't realize. The, the patients all disappeared because they were so scared of the press and what would happen. And eventually, uh, one of them came out and he was actually, um, bless him, he was actually a, a patient who was dying. So it was almost like he was he was just doing something um, for the greater good. And he, and he shook hands with her. And it was such a moment because it was her saying, look, this isn't how you get AIDS, you know, um, and these people deserve a hug you know they need it and that I think really sticks in people's in people's heads um, but there were also you know really telling handshakes as well I think it's the Irish 
uh, head, uh, Kenny, who was sitting yes. opposite Obama, was yep, it? Yeah, yep. Ob- in the White House. And um, and it's a brilliant clip. Please go go watch it. Obama's saying something along the lines of, and my good friend, Edna Kenny, and Kenny sticks his hand out, you know, to shake Obama's hand. And Obama doesn't even see the hand. <laughs> he like, just keeps going. <laughs> and uh, you can see it on Edna's face and you kind of really feel for him because you're like, we've all been there, mate. He just doesn't really know what to do. He kind of awkwardly looks at his hand and he just kind of puts it away. But obviously all the world's press have just been taking pictures of this kind of really embarrassing yes. moment. Well, there's a, a, that- Mer- Merkel had one too, and but it was a, it was at the beginning of the pandemic. As she came in, uh, she stuck her hand out to I think her minister of the interior, and he kind of waved her off. And she then she sort of looked up and said, "You did the right thing," because we, exactly. we we had sort of moved into the, into the pandemic. You know, I just want to go back to Diana for a second because I think there's an interesting irony there too, which is that uh, another thing that you document and I think argue compellingly in the book is that the handshake is a more egalitarian replacement for a much more complex and hierarchical world of uh, of haptic gestural behaviors. And that's especially true in uh, British royalty. Anybody who's watched the fourth season, fourth season of The Crown and mm-hmm. seen the scenes where Margaret or somebody's like chewing the princess in training out because she's screwing up the sequence of curtsies and stuff like that and doing saying, the, you know, and it's, it's interesting that she does this fundamentally small D democratic thing with the AIDS patient after having tried to survive in this world that's still clinging to these, you know, these ornate gestures that you talk about. Yeah. And and it's interesting that um, it's particularly actually in some ways for Americans, because uh, there was a, a very definite shift away from other kinds of greetings that might be seen as quite hierarchical. So, you know, there's there's a massive array of greetings, certainly in medieval times, and so many of them were based on hierarchy, right? Mm. So um, you would curtsy, you would bow, you would tip your hat. There was even one where you would place your hands palm on palm in front of uh, your master and they would kind of um, hold them together. Um, Notice there's no symmetry in them. And, and they're based on, on around hierarchy. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that as democracy, you know, is on the rise and as uh, gender equality is on the rise over those, you know, 200, 300 years, you start seeing an increase in the handshake and in its frequency. So in the US, for example, Washington, um, some people said that he quite liked kind of the airs of, of court um, and, and, you know, people would, would bow there. And when Thomas Jefferson turns up, he's not interested in that at all. It's about the handshake. And of course, the Quakers were also um, influential in that, um, in both the US and the UK, in that they were so against hierarchy and they were so against what they regarded as, as these really hierarchical greetings um, that they they saw the handshake as a protest against that. And so actually, this the handshake, which now in present society is seen as so um, prim and proper, and, you know, it was actually quite, of, of all the greetings out there, it was the one that symbolized, uh, in some ways, democracy the most. Um, so it's very interesting to see how things how things turn around. And actually, when you look at the biology of it, I think the most fun I had of the whole book was really delving into the biology of it and the what I argue were the origins of the handshakes and and the, the you know the chemical signals attached to them and all the kind of weird and wonderful stuff. It's not really, in my opinion, that surprising that uh, the handshake is is 
so prominent and rose to prominence in the way it did. Right. And you also compellingly argue that it's, it's just basically, basically in our wiring that, that chimpanzees uh, do a version of it. People in uncontacted tribes uh, who wouldn't be in a position to have absorbed it as an influence from somebody else do versions of it too, right? There's a sense in which it, it's got to be something that, that our minds and bodies kind of a priori want us to do. A hundred percent. And, you know, it, it's an interesting one to have argued in the book. And I was, you know, I kind of, um, I really hope I've, I've presented a really uh, kind of compelling case. But yeah, I argue that the handshake is actually 7 million years old. Um, and that's based on a number of things. It is based on the fact that chimpanzees shake hands. And that's really shocking for a lot of people to hear. But the chimpanzee handshake has so many meanings, but they're always positive, very similar to our own handshake, right? Because if you were to say, well, what does the handshake mean? Actually, it has a number of definitions depending on the circumstances. It can mean anything from I really agree to you to I respect you to hi, right? Or to uh, to agreeing to a contract. So uh, Dr. Kat Hobater, who's this primatologist um, up in Scotland, she has uh, this incredible footage of these two chimpanzees really fighting each other, like they're really going at it. And then at the end of this fight, they kind of sheepishly walk up to each other and shake hands. And the chimp handshake is more like a finger shake. But it's it's very clear what that is. And it's basically them saying, all right, let's make up. And, and it's kind of amazing that that happens. And as an evolutionary biologist, I'm like, hold on a second. If chimpanzees are shaking hands and if the bonobos are shaking hands, they're our closest relatives. It makes sense. Obviously, we can't be 100% sure, but it makes sense that the handshake, therefore, is by descent. It wasn't something that we both independently came up with. And you're right. I, I kind of asked myself about uncontacted tribes because uncontacted tribes are always fascinating to, to look at in terms of um, behavior, because whatever they whatever their behaviors are, it's not picked up yeah, by the Internet or because they watch Seinfeld or because it's some missionary turned up. They're uncontacted tribes. And there are references to a number of uncontacted tribes who knew exactly what the handshake was before they were in contact with people. And they kind of went through it with anthropologists and said, yeah, of course, we knew we know what that is. And then I asked myself, right, well, so what's the biological origin for it? And that's when we turn up and we start looking at chemo signals. And I think if this book had just been about chemo signals, I would have been happy. <laughs> <laughs> but impossible uh, to strip it out of its uh, its context, and including, you know, we, uh, we're going to run out of time here. We could have done 10 minutes on the sort of strange handshake strategies of former President Donald Trump, who came to us with the reputation of not liking handshakes and being kind of a germaphobe, but then did stuff like he would yank people toward him with his hand or with Macron. They had these kinds of endurance contests, uh, who, who was going to shake him longer. Um, he and uh, Justin Trudeau had to work out a different thing. There's a way in which it's, he seemed to be taking this fundamentally egalitarian gesture of collaboration and mutual welcoming and tried to turn it into a dominance behavior. Yeah, and, and you do see that. And you see that in, um, in some uh, business circles. Make sure you make an impression with the handshake. Make sure you dominate with a handshake. And it's really lost on people that um, that is not what the handshake's about. Um, in fact, there's, you know, some advice. I'm sure all of us have heard this at various times. The most important impression you can make in an interview hmm. is the handshake. And I just think, what? <laughs> it's more important than your, you know, an appropriate CV, a good manner, just, you know, knowing <laughs> what to say in an interview. Come on. I, I think there's an element of um, macho-ness there that just logically doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, when you saw those Trumpian handshakes, 
uh, you know, or the, or the one where him and Macron are going at each other, did that in any way look like anybody was winning? Right. You know, a, a, measure, <laughs> a, a, a measure of the degree to which the handshake has become kind of a gestural or, or haptic lingua franca was, I think, in 2014 when Japan's prime minister, Shinzo Abe, and China's president, Xi Jinping, shook hands during their meetings uh, at the Asia-Pacific uh, Economic Cooperation. Those are two people leading cultures that don't really have a preference for handshaking, right? And But the only way the world would understand what they were doing was if they did this thing that really wasn't knitted into the fabric of their own societies. Yeah, and I think that also speaks to global dominance as well. So um, they don't uh, shake hands historically. In fact, in the book, I argue that it may be because of a number of uh, global kind of or local um, epidemics, should we say. And yet that's what happens. And I think, you know, there are so many greetings in the world. The prominence of the handshake, its we know it's always been there, at least I'm arguing it's always been there. But I think the prominence of it is not just a result of biology, but it is also culture. And it is also, um, you know, cultures that visually have dominated or culturally or media-wise have dominated the landscape. And that, that does tend to be Western cultures. Right. I think we're when we see Trump, we're glad that nose rubbing didn't win out over handshaking. And it's a recipe for disaster. Well, we have to stop there, unfortunately. This I, I could have this conversation easily for another 30 minutes. And the book is a a lot of fun, too. So people should check out The Handshake, A Gripping History by our guest, Ella Al-Shamahi. Uh, thank you so much for doing this today. Not at all. Thank you for having me. And thanks for being so patient with me. It's been a complete runaround on my end. So uh, no, no. forgive me and thank you. We're going to do another show on Neanderthal soon. And you may be getting a call. <gasps> Please. Uh. That would be amazing. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks for being here today. We're going to take a break. You're going to hear some people ask you to support public broadcasting here in America. Please do it. Do it during our show because we get the credit. And good afternoon. I'm Ryan Karen King. I'm here in the studio with Jenny Ahrens, and uh, we're just cutting into the Colin McEnroe show to ask for your support. I'm sure if you're listening now, you're either, you know, one of those people who randomly happen to be passing through Connecticut tuned to 90.5 or any of the other stations that Connecticut Public is on, or you're a passionate listener of both Connecticut Public and the Colin McEnroe show. Um, if you're either of those people, uh, we could really use your donation. Uh, Connecticut Public and Public Radio and Public media in general. Uh, we are listener-supported, donated, don donor-supported. Uh, we need to both fund shows like Colin, like uh, Where We Live with Lucy, like Audacious and Disrupted, and all of the other local programming, as well as pay the bills and pay NPR to be able to distribute all of the programming from NPR, like Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, well, you know, the that, those all things stack up and and, we, and things uh, and donations like, you know, as little as $10 a month for you or, or whatever you can manage will make a difference to help us bring that to your airwaves, to your car radio, to your kitchen radio, uh, to your iPhone or, you know, wherever you're listening. 1-800-584-2788. Uh, That's the number to call. You can also go to ctpublic.org. Jenny, how you doing? I'm doing good. This is my first uh, pledge drive, so I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah. First time to really, you know, tell people about how, uh, you know, how the donation goes to folks, you know, like you and I. We you know we both work here. We both have jobs here. We both, you know, I, we both like our jobs. That's pretty cool. Um, 
Yeah. So, and, and uh, Jenny, uh, there's a there's a few ways we can thank you. Um, yes. And I don't have that in front of me, but you do. Do you want to tell folks about all the the different things that people can do that, to pitch in? <laughs> well, one that I'm particularly excited about is uh, David Sedaris event. You get to see for a donation of one hundred fifteen dollars, you can uh, see him in person at the Bushnell. Um, October 19th, uh, he will read from his book, Calypso. I don't know if you've ever read David Sedaris, but it is hilarious and sardonic and yeah. it makes anyone's crazy family seem a little more normal. <laughs> so that's what I loved about yeah. reading about him. Um, or if you want to do a sustaining membership of $12 a month, uh, we love sustaining donors. So, um, I've been one for years now, can't even begin to count. Um, an L.L. Bean 24-inch traditional balsam wreath. It's real balsam wreath. Um, so every time you come home from work, you will see something beautiful hanging on your door, a reminder of your wonderful gift to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, if you think about it, like, I, I don't know, I, I live uh, in a place where a standard cup of coffee costs like $4, right? And if you multiply that by like four or five, it's like $20. And I'm easily buying five cups of coffee a month and I can I can definitely say that uh, my uh, coffee drinking is not as important as public radio um, so if, if you're able to manage that um, and also maybe you want one of those uh, pledge drive items um, uh, feel free to call us up 1-800-584-2788 uh, that is the number to call. Um, yeah, and, and Jenny, you were saying earlier that you can also get like a, a New York Times subscription, yes. right? Yes, um, New York Times or a Washington Post subscription for $19 a month, sustaining gifts. Um, so you get double the amount of news in that bonus uh, gift selection there, NPR and uh, either the New York Times or Washington Post. Yeah, that's, that's a uh, – I mean – I personally, I, I can only handle one at a time, <laughs> but I, you know, some people like you know are news junkies, right? I mean, I have a New York Times subscription, but I, I save that for the end of the day, uh, you know, when I'm sort of just like reading through my phone. I have a Washington Post. Oh, no, you're so, a Washington Post. Yeah. WP, yeah. Uh, democracy dies in darkness, yes. and public radio does too. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, so yeah, so give us a call. Um, we're you know we're only popping here once or twice uh, for the next uh, show, um, but we have about a minute left in this pledge break, and in that minute, I'm just gonna say there are a lot of jobs in this world that I cannot do, and hosting a talk radio show and producing a talk radio show are two of those jobs, um, and I really appreciate what Colin uh, and his team, like Jonathan and Josh. Um, they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're researching, they're just like, they have this encyclopedic knowledge of everything that's going on that's interesting. Um, and also like this, this sort of niche, you know, if you listen to Colin, you know that he's not just, he, there's no surface level, it's all diving real deep. So if that's what you appreciate, give us a call 1-800-584-2788. If you want to donate online, it's ctpublic.org. Uh, and thank you so very much for your support. We're back. Uh, this is the point of the show where I thank people, uh, especially Kat Pastor, uh, who is our technical producer every single day. And in all of the ways that I'm completely stupid and inadequate about uh, a complicated thing like recording a show in advance and figuring out the clock, uh, Kat is brilliant. So uh, I'm so lucky. And, of course, Betsy Kaplan is the producer of this episode, and she's produced so many memorable episodes for us. So we want to talk about a very specific thing here. And, and to do it, we're going to talk to uh, Tyler D. Parry, assistant uh, professor of African American 
American and African Diaspora Studies Program and Interdisciplinary Gender and Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's the author of Jumping the Broom, The Surprising Multicultural Origins of a Black Wedding Ritual. So, uh, first of all, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much, Colin. Happy to be here. Thanks for reaching out. So if it worked better as an audio clip, I was we were going to play uh, this kind of famous Key and Peel routine where uh, Peel is uh, Obama and he's just, just finished giving some remarks and then his, his handlers say, you got to say, you got to greet some people. And he goes through this crowd and he very formally and politely shakes hands with white people. And then when he comes to a person of color, he's, he's like, bring it in here. And sometimes there's some dapping and then or a dap followed by a, a touch to the chest, a, a of each person's fist, and he's got all kinds of different things. It's a different thing with every single person of color that he meets, but it's clearly, I mean, the joke is there's this whole code, this whole gestural code uh, that is much more complicated and much warmer than what he's been informed he should do with, with, with people he greets who are white. And that's kind of a lot of what you're studying too, right? That idea that there are these different gestural codes, uh, particularly in, in this particular group of people. Yeah. I mean, my broader interests are, you know, why certain groups um, perform certain rituals with one another. And that can extend to what I wrote in my book about jumping the broom but also I became interested in this question of what's called the DAP or sometimes the, the soul shake or the black power handshake. And it, it was really fascinating to me how much Obama had kind of exposed maybe a more conservative base of white America, even when I think there was some kind of invented controversy on the right where he gave his wife, Michelle, a fist bump. Mm -hmm. which was interpreted as kind of this clandestine foreign ritual that he and he and her were using and for for whatever reason I guess some people had not been introduced to really I think for people maybe around my age in the 80s were somewhat familiar with um, if not on the playground but certainly through pop culture on on television but with the key and peel sketch it's always interesting because it's based upon um, some reality in that when you look at videos of Obama and the way he would greet people. There's at least one famous clip where he does a conventional handshake with a white individual. But then I think when he meets Kevin Durant, he does a very expressive <laughs> dap handshake and you know, brings it in for kind of the partial hug to, to complete it. And so Obama, I think, really did introduce a number of people to what I think scholars might call a subculture of, of the handshake within particularly Black American culture. Yeah, it's kind of um, a, a kinetic version of code switching. We think of code switching mostly in terms of verbal uh, interplay, but uh, but he's he's kind of uh, doing that there. So you um, make the point that this this really probably traces back to the African diaspora, to the slave diaspora, to the idea that on plantations there would probably be people from radically different African cultures who would need to figure out how to greet one another uh, and, and how to greet one another, one another maybe differently depending on who you were and whether you were from the same place. Yeah, and this was one of the newer components of, you know, what you might call handshake history or dap history because most people that have been writing about it were familiar with the uniqueness of black american handshakes and many people trace 
what is called the DAP specifically to the Vietnam War amongst Black GIs. But, you know, this, this particular piece that I wrote for Black Perspectives emerged from a very different project that I was reading for. And my dissertation, when I wrote it, required me to read a lot of narratives from Western Africa. And one day when I was in graduate school, I was reading a couple of books written by European slave traders who would comment upon the culture. And of course, they're applying a, a heavy amount of ethnocentrism in their comments. But when reading between the lines, what it seemed to me they were describing was something that was familiar to people who've ever, who've ever given gap or been given that. And so I found these kind of elaborate handshakes and particularly Sierra Leone, but at the time I didn't know quite what to do with them. It wasn't what I was specifically writing about. And so I, I put them aside for years really before I decided to write on something. But when I was commissioned to write a black perspectives piece, it was about a 1500 word essay. And I, I wondered what I could find. And it was interesting to see the literature that had developed since about 2013 about the origins of the DAP. And my research is making a suggestion that we can extend it beyond even just the United States into West Africa itself. And I've had a few people from West Africa contact me and they say that there's even maybe regionally specific forms of handshakes in places like Ghana or Senegal or the Gambia that do seem to emerge from very specific cultural tendencies of, of various groups. But the one thing that does seem to connect all of them is that they are far more than just a standard handshake that most Euro-Americans are familiar with. It's much more of an elaborate process in which, you know, fingers glide and knuckles snap and, and various other things. Right. So one place we see this a lot, uh, obviously, is in uh, at sporting events. Actually, we didn't, we couldn't do the Key and Peel thing, but uh, here's uh, Will Ferrell and Drake uh, as two uh, handshake coaches showing up to help a basketball team that seems to be kind of DAP impaired. Come on, great practice so far. We brought in a few experts to work on your handshakes. Handshake. This is Coach Murphy and Coach Palmer. Coaches. All right. Listen up. Guys, we've seen a lot of great plays from you today, but uh, your handshakes. Your handshakes aren't worth dog crap. Coach Murph is right, obviously. Um, listen, after, after a clutch shot, okay, the crowd wants to see you shaking hands, right? They want to know you're really friends. Best friends. That's right. That's friends from the same neighborhood, okay? Starting today, if you score but your handshake sucks, we will trade you. Absolutely. That's ridiculous. Excuse me? What? This Who's guy. talking? Smart mouth over Smart here. Smart mouth. What's your name? Demar. Demar. <laughs> Demar. Okay. Demar. Demar. I say it the less I like it. Is this guy even a basketball player? So, um, but this, I mean, LeBron James kind of famously has a very complicated assortment of daps that seem even very specific to certain players. I mean, he'll dap somebody one way and another another way. And obviously, sports is kind of a place where you 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 know you do have to kind of establish what your physical relationship is going to be with another person. Maybe you could say some more about that. Well, I think yeah, I, and there's an essay that Tanahasi Coates even wrote when he talked about working in predominantly white environments that over a certain amount of years as what you might call hip hop culture became more prevalent in the United States, but also with, you know, black and white players playing together on integrated sports teams is when you do start to see 
non-Black people becoming more familiar with specific forms of dapping. And as you mentioned, it can be very specific to, to different people. Like you might not actually do the same type of dap or the same type of handshake with the same person every time. And, you know, even in my own life, I've had people whom I haven't seen in a while, but I can expect a certain type of handshake that we've shared for a number of years with one another. But I think that with the history of handshaking in general, but specifically West African and African diaspora traditions, is it's always it's always been that way. People were very interested in kinship groups, very interested in ethnic affiliations, and there was a certain expression of solidarity. Now, where I think this does seem to change for Black Americans is that because of the racialized um, component of it to where everybody was just known as being Black and they were treated as such in the early to mid 20th century is when you start to see Black GIs using this as a form of racial solidarity, like mm. being Black in the U.S. military, being Black in the United States meant that that's something you shared and that you had to ensure that you looked out for your people, your own racialized group. And so it, it does seem that people do share different dApps with people who are close friends, but I think the dap broadly conceived was a way to express racial solidarity and then it evolved amongst friends afterwards. It gets kind of complicated either on a basketball court or maybe anywhere else when, um, I mean, so almost back to the key and peel thing, when um, the same uh, black athlete might have to greet a fellow white athlete, right? So then you have to kind of, both people kind of have to decide, right? Are we are we going to do some version of a dap, or is that an inappropriate attempt to penetrate what's ultimately kind of uh, a form of cultural solidarity? Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, and it is it is complex. Um, typically speaking, I mean, most people, if they don't know each other, if they want to embrace in some form, might just do the standard handshake. But and this is where I think it's important for people to maybe understand the history of cultural rituals is that we often take these type of embraces for granted because it's something that we see people do every day. But if you actually read the history as to how certain things are developed under the circumstances under which they are, I think people are often very surprised by how much deeper these things are than simply just greetings or salutations or farewells, and that it actually takes a certain process before people determine who is in their group or who is not. And so there, there are a number of testimonies from people where they say that they give handshakes to certain people that they're not as familiar with or that they're hesitant upon, but they will certainly go out of their way to give a more elaborate handshake to people that they know and affiliate with. And I, and I think even if you look at the history of you know, secret societies like the Freemasons, they have very specific handshakes that show in-group solidarity. But also one of the arguments that I think could be developed in this particular research is probably the history of the Black church and how there's there's some suggestion that the Black churches seem to have retained certain elements of specific handshakes that showcase the solidarity amongst that specific group of Black people. And so there's probably some form of cultural continuity that's preserved within institutions as well, that once you know we have this kind of televised popular culture that's disseminated in more immediacy, you start to see younger people um, obtaining that at much quicker rates. And then then it starts spreading and evolving as such. And so it does seem to me that institutions are probably primarily responsible for retaining a lot of cultural trends, 
But then when they become much more mainstream is when you start to see people um, kind of evolving and playing with the ways in which they approach them afterwards. We're going to have to stop there. There's a lot more ground to cover uh, with Tyler D. Perry, assistant professor at UNLV, author of Jumping the Broom, The Surprising Multicultural Origins of a Black Wedding Ritual. We're going to end the show, of course, with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jennifer Ahrens, a producer here at Connecticut Public, joined here by Ryan. Say hi. Hi. Oh, hey, 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 hey. How's it going? <laughs> hi. You caught me off guard. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, wanting to remind you that uh, we are asking for your help this afternoon to keep our endeavor going, keeping uh, you informed about our local politicians, our mm-hmm. local um, news developments, um, and we need your help to do that. Um, if you want to become a sustaining member, any contribution is appreciated. Um, one of our uh, thank you gifts we have, Connecticut Public has partnered with Connecticut Food Share, where if you give $10 a month, you'll provide 25, 25 meals for those in need. We also have a level of $16 a month for 40 meals of those in need, or $24 a month, you'll be providing 60 meals for those in need. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, the pandemic upset a lot of people's um, economies, local, um, local econ- economies, and uh, a lot of people need our help. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to mm-hmm. uh, give back while also helping us keep our uh, programming live and informative. Mm-hmm. And, and in order to uh, donate right now, you can call us up 1-800-584-2788. Um, and you can also go to ctpublic.org. Um, and if you're and if you're listening right now, like you, you don't need us to tell you why Connecticut Public Special, even though that's what we're definitely gonna do for the next couple minutes, because you know we love it here, and we and we want to you know sort of remind you that public radio is this special thing. You know, I think about you know in the newsroom, you know, we have to keep up to date with all of the things. So sometimes there's like a big TV of CNN you know, up up on the screen. And I just it, just looking at that for five minutes reminds me of how much cortisol just is going through my brain at any minute when I'm watching like, you know, traditional news. It's there's there's always some sort of there's like a lot of yelling. Right. <laughs> right. And it's not like people are, you know, whispering or anything like the, the traditional public radio, maybe um, stereotype here. It, but it's like here. Colin's like a release of serotonin, you know, like it's it's he's bringing you the world and the producers here are bringing you the world through, you know, a very contemplative and a very thoughtful um, and a very thought out, uh, you know, method methodology. You know, people do a lot of research before they bring these things on air. There's a lot of vetting um, before you hear what you end up hearing. Um, and so that means that someone is doing the work for you. Um, and <laughs> in order for someone to do the work for you, we've got to pay those people to do the work. And we've got to pay them fairly, right? So 1-800-584-2788, that is the number to call if you want to continue to hear this kind of thoughtful, insightful, very funky, crazy, creative, I'm sure there's a million adjectives for it, kind of programming like the Colin McEnroe show 1-800-584-2788 that is the number to call ctpublic.org thank you so much